So, okay. so we're recording this and then we'll do like a mini session that you can use for something else. Okay. But it's kind of a, a, a and we're recording this for informational purposes for therapists. There's a hypno summit thing and, and, and that, right. And, and for people that want to understand it, but again, going back to, and I focus on drinking as the primary thing with addiction because a, it's the biggest addiction uh, when it comes to substances. Um, you know, uh, more people die from alcohol than, than most people know, uh, especially uh, people in the Western world of means, you know, if you if you still got money and you got some things and you die of alcoholism, I guarantee you that if you, the doctor will put down heart failure, you know, because they don't want to put down alcoholism, right? So they're so so it's a bigger problem than people think. But one of the issues is for many years, and like I said, I was very guilty of it, where it was all or nothing. If you drank too much, you were an alcoholic in the story, right? And the only thing you could do is like go to AA. Well, AA is not for everybody, right? That's like saying, I want to believe in God, but you can only go to the Catholic church. It's not going to work. There's a lot of, there's a lot of ways. Um, but, I would, but what changed my mind was information about how your brain actually works. And like I said, so you're, most people, when they're little, they don't drink or use drugs, you know. Uh, but then they go through that period where they're going to experiment with drugs or alcohol. It's just what you're going to do, right? Again, and a small subset of that, 10%, will never, they just don't like the way drinking makes them feel. I always use my friend that was in the Army. He never drank. He drank once, got a little tipsy, hated the feeling. You know, he passed at 57, but he goes, I don't like the way that shit makes me feel. Right. And he never drank. He would go to bars. He would go to football games. He was a fun guy. He just didn't drink. Right. But most people will social drink, have a few, have not have a few. Da, da, da. And again, I always stress, doesn't mean you might not get drunk. You might go to a wedding and get drunk. You might get a DUI. You go to a wedding, you get drunk and on the way home. Woo. Right. And so in our system, if that happened to you, it's they make you go to treatment or they make you go to AA which, and you try to tell people, I really don't drink that much. <laughs> a, a true drinker will say that, right? So you're kind of, you're in that thing like, hey, hey, Barb, have you stopped beating your boyfriend yet? You know, so you're, there's no way out of this thing. So anyway, but some people, most people will social drink. Then people, some, there may be an incident. And this is why I think a lot of it goes to trauma, goes to unresolved things. Um, where you might start drinking too much. You go through, you know, you're, there's a death in the family. Uh, you lose your job, right? So you're drinking too much to self-medicate. You get a divorce. I mean, all you got to do is listen to country music. Every other goddamn songs about drinking too much because right. your wife or your somebody left you, right? <laughs> and so you go through that and you're drinking a lot, right? Uh, you go to combat. You might be drinking much or you're in the military. You're just drinking a lot. And it doesn't have to be negative shit. It could be positive. These Kids go away to college and they end up at a, like Florida, a good party school. I went to IU, one of the biggest party schools in the, in the country. And so you join a fraternity. And so for four years, you're pretty much blasted, right? And you're getting in a little bit of trouble. You're getting letters from the dean, your parents yeah. are yelling at you. You make it through. But according to the criteria, you're a substance abuser because you're drinking in the face of negative consequence. Okay. Now that can happen. Right? But then even most of those people 
when whatever they're going through negative or positive subsides, they go back to normal. They can drink or not drink, which goes against everything we've been taught in addictions for 75 years, right? So like a guy gets out of college, graduates, gets a job, gets married, has a kid, even though like for four years, he was like animal house. Now he's <laughs> fine, right? And he may drink every once in a while, but not too often. So he's back to being normal, right? But then you get about a small subset, eight to 10%, that they ne once they start that, they can't stop. They just can't stop. They're the 40-year-old frat boy still surfing on people's couches. They're the person that can't overcome the experiences that they went through, right? They've been divorced 12 years. They're still drunk, right? And so they're, they've moved into dependence and they can't stop. Right. And for those people, and it's a small subset. And for those people, the only thing they can do, it's a binary choice. They're going to drink or not drink. That's it. Right. Uh, they can't social drink again because for them and the analogy that's now coming back in vogue is for some reason they have an allerg allergic reaction to alcohol. Hold on. A, a allergic reaction. You know, I I so felt that, like I, I had an allergic, I felt like I have an well, allergic reaction. Yeah. And, and again, again, some people have allergies, some don't. My wife's allergic to strawberries. She's the only one, in her, not strawberries, shellfish. The only one in her family. Right. Right. Of course, the difference is she's allergic to it. She doesn't want to have shellfish. She knows that. Right. Right. And then with alcohol, the, the, the way that allergy manifests is you want more. You know, it's kind of like the sugar craving. Part of it is the sugar craving. So anyway, so if that's the group, and, and it's a small group that really needs the extra help, right? And again, it's either going to be buying, they can either drink or not drink, they're, they're not going to be able to do both. Well, when, they, when people think about that, uh, and it kind of goes to a study uh, that was done in a roundabout sort of way, and it kind of goes like this. Uh, there was a commercial in the late 60s, early 70s, and it showed like this rat in a cage and they got the rat hooked on drugs, right? I think it was heroin at first. Uh, and then they did it with other drugs, cocaine and alcohol. And it said, you know, like then they made a commercial, there's this rat there, right? And it's hooked on drugs and some drug, you know, then the voiceover, some drugs are so powerful, you know, it showed a little rat uh, that if you put a female rat in heat in there, the male rat would still ignore it and just keep getting hot put in food, the rat would ignore it literally and use the substance till it died. So it started the whole zero tolerance, kind of went to the thing about all or nothing. Okay. Well, at the same time, there was a social experiment going on. I call it that called the Vietnam War, where all these troops went to combat. Uh, 500,000 were in country at the same time from 1968 to 1972. And nobody wanted to be there. It was not a popular war. It wasn't like, hey, thank you for your service, right? And so people hated being there. It was uncomfortable, right? And so they self-medicated. They drank too much. There was, you know, it's Southeast Asia. So there's heroin, there's hashish, there's, there's all kinds of other stuff over there, right? And then the military shipped in tons of alcohol to keep the troops happy, right? So people are drinking, they're doing this, right? And so America started thinking about what are we going to do with 500,000 a year 
for several years, just say 2 million guys coming back addicted that, oh, by the way, we've trained as combat soldiers. That's not a good mix, right? And so right, they're, right. they're gearing for this huge problem. And so they, you know, the VA was looking into it and everything. And then what happened was they found when the war was over and guys came back, 90% after an adjustment period were fine. They went back, they could drink, they could not drink, maybe smoke a joint, whatever it was, they were fine. Only about 10% had the problem where they couldn't stop. And whether they, and it didn't matter how much combat they saw and other things. Part of it went to, were they going back into a happy environment or a horrible environment? Were you going back to the coal fields where you didn't want to be and there, there was no jobs anyway? And, you know, or, or that the people that went back to happy environments seemed to do better. So some psychologists looked at that old rat study and they did it again. They hooked rats on alcohol and drugs and that. But this time, instead of taking, the, taking that rat and throwing in a female, you know, or throwing in food, they took the rat out of the cage and put it in a happy rat cage, they called it, you know, with stimulation, with females, with and males and, and babies and food and all this, right? And all the rats quit, right? And they didn't go through withdrawal, the, the, the mechanism, a little thing that, you know, like how they, you know, give rats water. It was there, yeah. the rat could have got high whenever it wanted, wouldn't do it. So much like, much like that, the soldiers, sailors, air and Marines coming back, the ones that were going into back pretty good environments just kind of self-regulated. So maybe it was a combination of the trauma they saw in combat, right? right? And uh, the allergic reaction, right? And so again, that's why, you know, the whole idea of, of you know, uh, there's only one way to treat an alcoholic and, uh, and that's not true. There's, you know, and it, and, but what works for one may not work for another. And one of the issues I see in the hypnosis community and the NLP community, and even in the psych community a little bit is the dislike for the 12 step program. Right. And they'll use whatever they want to use, right? Oh, you're labeling yourself or you're this or that. Well, usually there's a couple things going on with that. Number one, I had a friend and I, I like the 12-step program. And my friend been in the he was also in the 12-step program. Now he worked in a steel mill. He really didn't like his job. And so once he started to sober up, he would go to AA and he liked AA, right? And so you know, when you go to an AA meeting, it's not what people think it is. You're not just sitting there talking about drinking. You're talking about, you know, what life is like with, it's therapy. It's therapeutic. You know, you talk about your fears, your anxiety, your family issues, and people help each other in that, right? Because at work, especially men, right? If you're not talking booze, broads, or sports, shut up. Yeah. You know, you're not going to tell your friends, I'm really frightful this week. I got anxiety. <laughs> They're like... Put on your big boy panties, boy. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about the bears. Right. And so, and my friend got to help other human beings. And I do not back off the next statement. It is hypocritical to the 10th degree when a hypnotist who gets to work with people every day about feelings, thoughts, and emotions wants to tell someone, but well, you shouldn't go to AA. Well, what are they supposed to do? Right. Plus, if you grew up in an alcoholic family, we didn't even talk about that. 
Do you even know how to have fun without alcohol? Is it in your world? And in certain cultures, you know, certain professions, people drink a lot, depending on your age. Uh, and you're abnormal in this culture if you do not drink. You know, I've been around this one theater group for 20 something years and it took them five years to realize I just don't drink. I would tell them, I don't hide it. I'd say, I don't drink, you know, I break out in handcuffs, you know, you know, it cost me a military career, it cost me a, my first acting career. And, uh, but they'd, even then they'd say, you know, like at a Christmas party, oh, you, hey, you want a drink? No, we got beer, no, we got wine, no. And they, you ever notice that? They'll go through every damn thing on the list. And you're like, I don't want any alcohol, right? right? So some of them might say, hey, I've got some porn. You want to watch some porn? <laughs> and they'd say, well, that's disgusting. I said, that's like you offering me a drink, right? So anyway, so there's that. But the 12-step program works for certain people very well. One of the people I can tell you know, groups, men and women, were bar drinkers. Because if you went to a bar every night after work or three, four days, and suddenly you're going to quit drinking. And I would always ask my friends that are hypnotists that says AA is not good. I said, what are these people supposed to do at night? Go home and watch goddamn Oprah. Yeah. I mean, or you're, you know, and usually it's people that don't know what that, what it would be like to have their whole world revolve around alcohol. Right. So there, AA gives you a re-education process, right. Where there's dances, there's parties, uh, social groups, you know, mm -hmm. where people hang out together, they get to, you know, re-educate themselves. And so that's like a synopsis of how I started to look at drinking. And again, some people, if you just pull them out of that unhappy rat cage, long enough, long enough, 80%, that's it, they're done. They may never go back to drinking. I do, I do this thing called beat the booze challenge. I'm bringing it, bringing it back, 21 days to beat the booze. And I stress at the beginning, it doesn't mean you're an alcoholic. It doesn't mean anything that other than you're drinking too much, which can happen. And especially right now in the age of COVID, right? You're bored. You know, I saw it a lot when I first moved to Florida with, like you said, people retire and they don't have to get up tomorrow. Yeah. So they can have that extra two, three yeah. minutes to one, I mean. right? And their money's not that big of an issue, right? And around here, you know, some of these little subdivisions kind of subliminally push that once you're in our, you know, once you're in our thing, as long as you're in your little golf cart, you can't get <laughs> trouble. They can't give you a DUI, right? Uh, and that's what these, a lot of these closed communities, they brag about that, right? Mm -hmm. And people drink too much and, and this and that. And so, but if you pull people out of that unhappy rat cage, many will go back to normal. Now, some may need extra help, right? But my beat the booze challenge is just give it up long enough to see if you like giving it up. Because the other thing that, that's not talked about enough is even people that drink too much, whether it's substance abuse or substance dependence, men and women will age about a, a, a high percentage of those will age out of drinking or even getting high as much in their late 30s and 40s. It, they ju it's just aging up. They just, their body doesn't want to do it anymore. Uh -huh. You know, it's like, you know, when you're 28 and you go out and you have a few beers uh -huh. and you stay up, you know, it's two in the morning, no big deal. You get up at five, you get dressed, take a shower, you go to work. At 40, if you're not in bed by midnight, 
you're calling off the next day. Your body just can't right. do it. So many people age out, right? Well, that and, happened. I, I mean, I physically couldn't do it, but that didn't stop me. Oh, no. That meant, you know, something pulled you back a lot, enough to get you to look at it differently, right? And, it, and then yeah. again, now you've got, you know, as long as you, as you can stay in a happy rat cage, as we're calling it, right? And a lot of that's just, you know, and again, and I think one reason we're seeing, you know, alcohol sales in the United States is up 40, 48%, I think it was last time I checked. Uh, God knows what marijuana sales is up, but, you know, it's since it's legal, it's everywhere, right? And THC, all that shit's going up, right? Let alone the uh, opioid epidemic, mm-hmm. right? It's through the roof because of COVID. People are bored. People are scared. You know, they're losing their jobs. They can't go back to work like what you experienced yeah. other people. It's like one of my friends, they used to make seven, eight, seven, $800 a week as a waiter, waitress rather, excuse me. Mm-hmm. And she went back to work and she's like, I'm lucky to make 150 a week. Nobody's going to the restaurant. Yeah. Right. And so there's that. So people are drinking too much. Now, will it subside if things pick up? Right. And I think it'll be the same numbers. Nine out of 10 will probably go back to normal. It'll be fine. You know, or they have to go back to the office. They can't sit at home and go, no, no, this isn't vodka. It's just water. <laughs> well, and so, so there's that. So, you know, it, it's, it's that continuum. And when we, and I'll shut up with the opioid epidemic, even going back 10 years, it was, they never want to admit the places that had the opioid crisis were economically destroyed areas. The coal mines, the steel mills, the auto plants. So you grew up, your grandfather worked in the steel mill or the coal mine, you know, your great-grandfather, your grandfather, your dad. And now suddenly they're like, nope, we don't need you. Right? And so there's no job. And, you know, a lot of those places, I don't know all these, if you've ever been to some of those places, if you remove the steel mill, the coal mine, or the or the uh, oil factory, there's not a lot of goddamn reason to live there. Right. You know, and so it's sad. It's an unhappy rat cage. And opioids, just like alcohol, it changes your mood. Right. And so, and again, people get addicted. And opioids is a slightly different topic because it has different neural. Uh, chemical pathways, but still it's the same process. But anyway, the thing I usually say is what works for a lot of people is to pull out enough, give yourself some time. And part of it boils down to many people, when they hit that, they go, you know, part of me really wants to quit drinking, but part of me is afraid, or part of me doesn't know if I can do it, or how am I ever going to have fun again? So they're constantly at war with this part of me wants to do this, part of me wants to do that, right? And again, they maybe intuitively know that, you know, part of me really wants to quit drinking, but I don't want to be weird. You know, what are my friends going to say? What are my family going to say? You know, and honestly that you won't know until you do it. Okay. And so that's why I always do the one technique called the visual squash at the beginning. And probably for about over half the people, that's all they need is to resolve that inner conflict, right? right? And if they have internal trauma, that's 
that will that will be the next step. And again, when you look at people that have been like go to treatment and still relapse, go to treatment, relapse, um, almost all the research now is pointing to the people that have that experience uh, have trauma, some kind of trauma, physical, mental, emotional, spiritual, sexual, right? And again, I always stress the experts in trauma would stress all trauma is personal. You can't, you know, it doesn't mean you like combat veteran, rape victim, car wreck. It could be something minor. You might have grew up in a household where you were never told you were loved. And people act like, oh, that's mine. No, that's huge. Right? So you had, you, you, you grow up with that trauma of not being able to connect. Or if your primary caregivers, your mother and your father basically ignore you. Right? Uh, that's traumatic, right? Uh, and again, I'm, I'm arrogant enough to say almost all the people I hear that say like, ah, that's nothing. They didn't grow up in that environment, right. you know? And so, so that's kind of an overview of, of it, right? And, and, you know, in my, in my beat the booze thing, that's what I basically focus on is, is education, psychoeducational change the subconscious using our NLP and hypnosis. And that's in the, included in the 21 day. Yes. Yeah. Uh -huh. I have someone who. Yeah, I'm gonna, and I'm going to do the beat the booze. In fact, I was scheduled to probably do it next month. And I, because of all, I got COVID, my wife has still got it. Yeah. Uh, I'm putting everything back. Probably going to be November, which will be like beat the booze for Christmas. You know, give yourself the gift of Sprite of a different attitude, you know? So, um, so you said that with the opioids that it's a different neural pathways because I was thinking like, could you do the same thing for sugar yes. or any, yes. you know, right. anything? And, and uh, as you said, sugar is a big part of the alcohol. So, yeah. but, um, I mean, I wouldn't mind getting away from sugar. I could use the okay. same techniques. Well, here we go. So party wants to give up sugar. And part of me likes, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but party goes, fuck you. I'm not giving it up. I like sugar. I like carrot cake, whatever your trick is, right? Yeah, uh, I have my birthday cake. <laughs> right, birthday or, or whatever it is, right? Uh, the only upside I've seen from my own having it and talking to a lot of people that have had it now with COVID is about 40% of the people lose their sweet tooth. I think right oh you mean once you have it yeah 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 and, um, and that's what some of they're even saying that in the in the research about long-term recovery from COVID, long, yeah you know that you lose you don't lose all your sense of taste but you you change your taste buds right so that's a different topic so party wants to no care. but yeah but does that come it's supposed to come back but i know they have that long hauler uh yeah yeah, yeah. um so party would like to give up sugar, but party likes it, right? The same as alcohol, like, like you know it's bad for you, but you yeah, like it. Yeah, yeah. And so, and so, how would you, how would your life be different if you didn't have sugar? I think I'd be healthier. Okay. I mean, sugar, it's a killer, and you know I've had cancer and everything, and, and cancer thrives on sugar. Okay, so you you so, you'd, you'd feel better. Well, so, you know, intellectually, uh, I know okay. this is not a good thing to okay. do. 
Yeah. So what else would not, not just not eating sugar, here's the trick, not wanting sugar. Yeah. Well, what else would that do for you? Um, well, I wouldn't have to think about it. I wouldn't have to battle myself. Yeah. Okay. And that would be a good thing, right? Yeah. Okay. And, you know, um, and so like alcohol, think, like people drinking, they must do the same thing, right? I mean, take that drink or don't take that drink. It's a battle. Right. And then you have that internal battle. Yeah. And once you get rid of the internal battle, it's like, no, I, no, thank you. I'm done. I don't, you know. And somebody that doesn't fight sugar can go to like a Christmas party and there's that whole, all the cookies and cakes and all that. And they just walk right by it, you know, and it, they're not fighting it. They're just so, no, I don't want it. Thank you very much. You know, they'll munch on a carrot or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, and they're happy. So, so you have the part of you that really wants to change it right over here. So you got the part that, uh, you know, wants to change it, but then you have the part that fights it right? What will it be like? I will never enjoy food. What about my birthday? Wah, wah. That boy, right? Okay, good. So let's just do the technique real quick. Ready? So this is a hypnosis technique. So take a deep breath and close your eyes. And just with your eyes closed, think about somebody you love deeply. Could be anybody. Somebody from your past, you know, a pet even, a person, place, or thing that you love. And just notice where in your body you feel that love. Where do you feel it? Is it in your chest? Is it in your throat? Yeah. Chest? What color is it? It's like, a, it's just a red heart. Okay, it's a red heart. Great. That's just something to think of. Now what I'd like you to do is think about the part of you that wants to make this change, to give up the sugar, right? And I'd like to thank this part and you should too, because it wants what's best for you. That's why we're doing this, right? And so just notice what it looks like, sounds like, and feels like. It's the part of you that wants to do it. Now, you know all the reasons. You'll have better mental energy, physical energy. It's better for you all the way. Weight loss is, it'll, will probably happen just because if you eat less sugar, but it'll, all the good things, great. So I'd like to thank this part, and so should you. Now, next to it in your mind's eye, imagine that part of you that for whatever reason or reasons fights this change, right? Keeps you stuck. And notice what it looks like, sounds like, and feels like. And, and as you do, realize that, you know what, maybe it mislearned things because society tells us, oh, you know, you got to have cake at your birthday, you got to have cake at Christmas or whatever, and cookies and sweets, and every other commercial is for cookies, cakes, or sweets, right? Our food industry knows that once we start sugar, we want sugar. It's an addictive process. Um, but we don't understand that at the, at the heart level when it's, it's just what it is. So you, and this part's afraid not, not to give it up. And so we're not gonna take away its ability to help you because you still wanna enjoy your birthday and parties and cakes and, or not cakes, but parties and things like that, but you could do it without the sugar. And so the two parts for the first time in your life begin to face each other and they work out every single detail, physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually for you to not just not have sugar, but to not want sugar. 
And so as they begin to negotiate, the part of you that wants to make this change can reassure the other part of you that you can do this. You'll still take care of yourself, enjoy yourself and uh, holidays and parties, but you'll be able to do it without the sugar. Now, the part of you that used to keep you stuck agrees to try and join and just have some fun. And so these two parts work out every single detail, physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually for you to do this. And so as they work out every single detail, you feel some shiftings taking place. You feel some shiftings taking place. It doesn't have to make sense consciously. But as soon as the shifting takes place and these two parts come together, no part of you wants to go back to the old behavior. No part of you wants to do that. You're really ready to make this change. And so look at this new part of you that wants to not just not, not eat sugar, but not want sugar and nurture it. And the easiest way to do that, dear, is put it into that heart, that red heart, so you can love and nurture this new part of you and help you make these changes. And as you wrap that up, I'd also like you to think about, used to drink, then you gave up. Something happened, it snapped you out of that cage, put you in a different spot. You can see other people drinking, doesn't bother you. You'll be, you know, if you're out and about, people are having drinks, that's fine. It doesn't bother you. What if alcohol, where alcohol is in your brain, that you could just say, no, thank you. What if sugar goes right next to it? So it used to be true and now it's not. Just like at one moment in time, you would drink even if it made you sick. You would drink even though you know it wasn't good for you. What if, but now you don't. So it used to be true, but now it's not. So what if you put sugar in the same place? So maybe starting as soon as tonight or tomorrow, you start thinking about, it used to be true. I used to eat a lot of sugar. Now I don't. It's that simple. doesn't bother me when I see other people eating sugar. Good. Now put all that together in your mind and then take a deep breath, open your eyes, come on back. All right. So that's a quick little session on, it's the visual squash, the part of you and the part of you, right? And so again, let me wrap, you stay on, let me wrap it up. But yeah, if you have questions, just reach out. Um, uh, I, I have a quick question. How much of the people doing alcohol do you think are really wanting sugar? Probably about That's a third. I mean, like, that I, I, I never occurred to me, but. Oh, yeah. That could be what's going on too, right? It, yeah, and, and, and it's also why you see a lot of people quit drinking, gain a lot of weight. Because oh. their body's still craving sugar. So they, and part of it when you're first sobering up and the old traditional world and it still works. It's like they tell somebody, have some cookies, you know, you know, drink a soda, right? To get the blood sugar up because it's the craving, right? And again, as bad as that could be, you usually don't get arrested for driving under the influence <laughs> of Dairy Queen, right? So it, it could be that thing. And it's also why to this day, you go to a lot of AA meetings uh, and NA meetings, they'll have cake in the back or they'll have cookies yeah. and yeah. it's something... You know, part of that's cultural, break bread, bonding, and a lot of it's the, the blood sugar. So again, let me just wrap this up. So uh, Dr. Will Horton, NFNLP, if you have any questions, reach out. Uh, look for the Beat the Booze 21-day uh, program for a new life. That, that'll be coming up probably end of October, first part of 
November. Kind of uh, give yourself the gift of a new life. So I look forward to seeing you all.